Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the revised common lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Sarah Dirk. Sarah is a professor of Bible and especially of Old Testament at Houghton College, a sister institution of my school that's in uh, New York. And she's an old friend of mine and a fantastic Bible scholar and preacher. And I hope that you'll enjoy hearing her for the second time on the show. And our text this week is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4a. That's Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4a. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass the show on through social media or private text or however you like to do it so that others might benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. Well, would you like to read or pray? How about if I read? Okay. You read, and I will say a word of prayer after that. So it's uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4a. And yeah, I'm I'm tempted. Well, we'll just read what's in the lectionary, but if we choose to add more as we discuss, (laughs) that would be just fine. So how's that? That's fine. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open and before whom all desires are known, we ask that you would cleanse the thoughts of all of our hearts, that we may know you as you are manifest in this written word, and that we may proclaim you faithfully, and praise you uh, with joy and delight. I ask this for myself and for Sarah, as well as for all those who are listening in uh, across space and time. Cleanse our thoughts, cleanse our desires, direct them toward you. O Lord God, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So what, uh, what strikes you as we read this again for the first time? <laughs> Goodness. Every time I come to this passage, I am just struck by the irony. Um, there's just, there are just so many <laughs> layers of irony here. It's, 
it's impossible from the human perspective that what God says to Abram could possibly come true hmm. in, in this passage. Um, go from your country and I will make you a great nation. And this, this kind of narrative move where you set out to make your fortune, <laughs> it's so very Western, so very American that it just kind of, well, we just take that for granted. Of course, God will bless someone who sets out to make their name. But in this world, you did not succeed when you leave home. Hmm. You succeed by staying at home and you make a great nation and a great name for yourself by staying at home. So what God is asking of Abram here is so counterintuitive. And how can he be a great nation with a barren wife? Hmm. (laughs) This is impossible. And it's so familiar to us that I think we miss the irony until we stew in it for a little while. (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's what, what always strikes me when I come back to this particular passage. Yeah, the the dramatic irony yeah. as well as the the character in the situation as well as the just the verbal irony of you know go from your land, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think it can be translated land there. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. and from your kindred mm-hmm. and I'll make you a great nation. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, goy goy belong in you know mm-hmm. Adam land, right? Like they don't. It's not they don't. Uh, wow, I, I I don't know if the irony has struck me the way mm-hmm. that you put it before, and it's really powerful. Yeah. Well, there is no such thing as an identity apart from your kindred and your father's house in the ancient Near East. There is no name apart from your heritage. And so to leave them behind, and, and that's before we ever get to talking about the notion of having a land that belongs to you. And of course, he's, it's even ironic to say go from your country because at this point they've already left Ur right. in Haran. So it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's ambiguous. Is Haran really their country? But I think the, the pull back to the father's household is evident in the chapters that follow for Abram's family. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's where he goes to find, he sends Eliezer, his servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac. That's where his grandson, Jacob flees to find refuge from his, from his tricked brother. I mean, Haran is the father's household that the whole, the next three generations keep returning to. And so there's a tension here. How can anyone become a great nation when they have essentially become untied from the moorings of the, of the family household? Yeah. The family and the, I wonder if the land is doing some work here mm-hmm. too, because um, I mean, you're right that, that there, it was when you said identity when you listed and said in the, in the ancient Near East and probably for us in the modern world more than we admit actually, but we can yeah. save that for later. Uh, yeah. But in the ancient Near East, the, there's no identity without, there's no name, there's no nation, there's no family, there's no identity without family and household, those connections. 
And you could probably add land to that. I mean, he, yeah. because that's how people are named, right? You're, you're, you're Jehu the Hittite. That's right. That's and that, right. and that doesn't, and those are not, and those are clearly not, because he's referred to as Aramean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. which is Padam Aram. That's, that's where they settled, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. you're kind of named by your land, not necessarily by your quote race or ethnicity in the yes. way that we conceive that in a modern world, Yeah, because he would be an Urian or a Chaldean, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But he yeah. almost never gets referred to as that. Is It's usually Aramean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My father was a wandering Aramean, so. Yeah, that's what it, I was thinking of when I said that. Yeah, yeah. and, and and the place names in the genealogies previous to this chapter connect many of Abram's ancestors to that region up in Mesopotamia where Haran and Peleg and other okay. other names are also place names as well as personal names. So so there is a connection to that land and 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 maybe Ur then as a previous locale for this family is just a way of saying, well, this is the the origin of this family, but now they are the tribes that have settled Haran and the region up there. So there's a definite connection. There's a definite identity with that territory. And to leave it is in some senses a death sentence. That's that's why being uh. kept out of the community later in Israel's history is such a threat. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to wander over to the next village and settle down. No, no. if you are set apart from the nation, from the community, from the family and household, you become incredibly vulnerable because you have Mm. no one, you have no family at your back who will avenge you. You have no one to offer you hospitality if you're destitute. You have no one to redeem you. Wow. So being separated from your household is a death sentence, which is an idea that we see then, and I think is in the background in so many of the later Old Testament laws, including what to do, with, including what, I mean, this is really a rabbit trail, but what to do with prisoners of war. You have to take them into a household or they will die. So there's, there's such a I mean, I think there's been a debate in the scholarship about, well, really, how collectivist was this, were these societies, and, and that we, could, we don't need to get into all that, but it's such a reversal of our Western and particularly American narrative of set out to seek your fortune, or maybe it, you know, maybe it comes from European fairy tale kind of stuff, mm. <laughs> but it's it's a threat. It's a real threat. Another piece of irony that I see here is that there is this is the first time in generations that the Lord has spoken in the text. And so, how huh. how in the world does Abram know <laughs> who this wow. God who this God is? And you know, it hasn't been since the Tower of Babel. Yeah, and even there, the speaking is revealed to us by the narrator, but yeah. it's a kind of, it's a, it's a heavenly council. There's not a, yeah. Right. right? I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think there's a direct address. Right. Um, so in a way it'd be in some sense, it's been since Noah in the mm-hmm. sense of a, a character. Right. Hearing yeah. directly. And, and, and a lot's happened since then. That's right. That's <laughs> like right. it's a lot of time. <laughs> 
That's right. And later on in later iterations of the promise, it will sometimes come through the intermediary angel of the Lord. But in this first installation, it's just a direct reported speech. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, (laughs) well, okay, from Abram's perspective, who is Yahweh? Yeah, the uh, yeah you, you mentioned the intermediary of the angels, and I was thinking of the some of the you know the the the, the torch in chapter fifteen. You know, so, so we have some supernatural signs, yeah, right? Yeah. So you so this is without mediation and without signs, right? right. Just pure speech. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that is that is extremely striking. And with no in the context, yeah. With no detail of where where he's heading, just leave. Yeah, the I'll, land I will show you. I will show you when to stop. <laughs> I know that's that's all I could think of last night as I was <laughs> laying in bed and thinking about this text for today. Mm-hmm. And I'll make this my official first impression. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I can't help but think about my previous boss here at the seminary mm-hmm. who's now the general superintendent mm-hmm. the Wesleyan church, Wayne Schmidt. And he would talk about this text in terms of his journey of leaving the church that he had pastored oh, for yeah. decades. Yeah. And he yeah. said how there's the go and then there's the land I will show. Yeah. Right. And then he said, yeah. and between yeah. the go and the show is the <laughs> don't know. Right. That was this little, I, I couldn't, <laughs> right. The, yeah. What it, and that happens sometimes. Sometimes sometimes we're sent somewhere specific and that's how we know it's time to go. Mm-hmm. But often it's time to go and we don't know what's next yet. Yeah. And th- it's not a coincidence that you know the New Testament authors make a lot of the Abram as a Model. exemplar of faith, yeah. of trust. Absolutely. Yeah. You see it embodied already in verse 4. Yes, already... <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, and the, and the, I mean, you don't even have to get to the new Testament because then, you know, a couple chapters later, uh, it was reckoned to, he believed the Lord and yep. the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's in that one moment of believing the promise, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and to see that, that, that trust theme is already Mm-hmm. implicit here mm-hmm. um what we see is obedience right yeah. but the obedience yeah. is also implicitly an act of trust yeah well these are some great first impressions let's take a quick break and then come back and great. go in deeper and chase down some of those bunny trails we want. Yeah, great. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment and introduce you to a couple people. I've got here in the, quote, studio, Eric Fisher and Todd Bouchong. Say hi. Hello. Hello. This is Eric. This is Todd. Todd and Eric are old, dear friends of mine. And you, if you're a regular listener to the show, you've heard me say at the end of every show, a big thank you to Todd and Eric for all the great production and editorial work they do. The reason I invited them to uh, join us today is to make a request of you, dear listener, to make a big ask to support the show. As you've heard me say many times, I can't imagine doing this show without Todd and Eric's work, their production work, editorial work, the behind the scenes stuff that doesn't get seen and is thankless 
kind of work. I record this show for fun, basically to geek out with my scholar friends. I, I love it. Uh, I would keep doing it for free and I will keep doing it for free. But these guys spend a lot of time and there's, and there's cost to equipment and material. And I would love to compensate them for the great time of work that they do. Well, just as producers, we want to thank, you know, all of you as listeners. Both Eric and I, I think, consider the time that we spend uh, both editing and producing the podcast as kind of an extension of the ministry that is Fresh Tech. So it is awesome to get the chance to reach out and say hello and interact with some audience members. That being said... Whatever amount that you may be able to give would go a long way to helping us continue this ministry and continuing to bring you engaging and awesome conversations with a variety of different scholars and pastors. So uh, if you are considering giving, we've made it pretty easy for you. All you need to do is go to paypal.me forward slash fresh text podcast, or more easily, you can just click on the link uh, that we have in the show notes. Yeah. Now, if you're driving as you're listening... First pull over or, you know, make a note to, to pull this back up and, and, you know, listen and, or, or go to that site when you get to your destination. But again, that URL is paypal.me slash fresh text podcast. Or again, open up your show notes for this episode. With all of that said, we hope that you still continue to have a great preach and a great week. <laughs> Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm your host, John Drury, and we're here with Sarah Dirk, looking at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4a, a tiny passage, though, that captures the, it's kind of a stand-in. I, I, I immediately, we already kind of jumped back. We've been jumping before and after the text. I, I think there's one, it seems worthwhile to at least look at maybe even read a couple verses past where, where the lectionary suggests just to kind of see some of the initial fulfillment of the promise. Yes, Like you say, like the the fullness of this is just an implausibility. Mm -hmm. And even in his lifetime, there's, you know, it barely gets fulfilled Mm -hmm. only the (laughs) one offspring, you know, none of the, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. but, but God doesn't leave him completely hanging. And I think I noticed this one of these things where, Another thing that was kind of in my mind was uh, the famous, you know, to your seed, I'll give this land Mm -hmm. that actually appears later. So it's very interesting how there's a second encounter in terms of Abram recognizing the Lord's voice becomes interesting. So it says in verse four, Abram was 75 years old when he had departed from Haran and Abram took Sarai, his wife and Lot, his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram. So now we have appeared, not just yeah. said, <laughs> yes. appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land to your seed. I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to Adonai who had appeared to him. 
And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, built an altar to Adonai and called the name on, called on the name of Adonai and Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev. So you get the whole geography of Canaan in uh, one, in a couple verses, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you get two altars mm-hmm. and, and you get the Lord appearing mm-hmm. uh, and speaking, and then you get him worshiping, calling on the name of the Lord. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that would be worth uh, at least noting the immediate yeah. kind of what his obedience looks like as it unfolds mm-hmm. and that God does in fact point out the land. He doesn't give yeah. the specific boundaries yet, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they traverse the land that God specifies for them. To your offspring, I will give this land. We still have not gotten to the part of the promise where the offspring will be as numerous yeah. as the midst of the earth, That's which right. comes in chapter 13 and then is repeated in, an, in a later chapter still. But so, so far, the promise as, I mean, as I talk about it with my students, what, is, what does God promise to Abram? Uh, He promises land, the promised land that we call it now, as we call it now, this land of Canaan. He promises innumerable offspring, and he promises that Abram's family will become the litmus test by which God will judge all the nations of the earth, and that through this family, the nations will be blessed. So immediately then he is sent into another nation. And at that time, the Canaanites, the tribes were in the land of Canaan. And so, yeah, you're, you're right. There is a a sort of an immediate uptake on this. Um, What is Abram's experience as he journeys by stages toward the first nation he encounters outside of his home? And that's, uh, that's what we're going to, is going to unfold in, in the next chapters. But it's interesting to me because Of course, we know from chapter 11 that Sarah is barren and has no child. And that's a, a little bit of a redundancy back there in, in chapter 11 when she's introduced huh. around verse 20. Huh, yeah. Uh, verse 30. Yeah, so yeah. 1130, we're told Sarah was barren. She had no child. And That's the uh, same thing, right? It, isn't that the same thing? <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, it's not the same thing. And I think that okay. this... This is a major, major theme that's being set up for us here that's going to follow through the entire Old Testament all the way to Elizabeth, who we talked about (laughs) the last time we were in a fresh text conversation. But the point here is that she is physically barren, which means she's incapable Mm. of carrying a pregnancy to term. But she also has not taken measures to provide an heir for herself in any other way. And there were other, right, okay. there were possibilities of surrogacy through the use of a maid, which they will do later. It says in this text that she has no child. And I think that's, I think that's intentional because Lot is in the picture. And okay. so if a family in this day and age was barren, they had several options. The first and probably easiest option relationally was to adopt a family member as their heir. And that appears to me to be what, what they've done with Lot. Yeah, that's the, at least the, 
And would that be, oh, sorry to interrupt. Maybe you were going to give more options because I did have a question about that because, mm-hmm. because it doesn't say that they've done that. I was curious with your knowledge of the mm-hmm. engineer's culture, like would that be sort of officially and explicitly rendered or would it be kind of applied and assumed until something else happened? Do you catch what I'm asking? Yeah, I think it was probably a formal agreement. Okay. So Lot has been orphaned. His father, Haran, is is dead before they ever moved to right. from Ur. So Aaron died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his killed kindred. So he predeceased his own father. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Back in back in Ur. Yes, back in Ur. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so and then I think that in here in our text in verse four, and Lot went with him. Now mm-hmm. this is to me a sign that Lot is formally adopted as Abram's heir. And I think that is confirmed in chapter 15 when God, when Abram complains to the Lord, what will you give me for yeah. I continue childless and the heir of my house is we should read there, I think, now the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Why is Eliezer the heir now? Because Lot has chosen land on the other side of the Jordan. He has opted out of the promise by choosing land outside the promised land. And so he has made himself ineligible now. He has separated from Abram's household, and that's why the separate... Uh, he's already taken his uh, inheritance, as it were, yes, yes. to kind of go build his own family. Yes, yeah, exactly. I see. If he had not been Abram's heir, the natural thing would be for him to have stayed in Haran and built the name of his father's household there with Terah. Right, okay. So the fact that he comes with Abram into Canaan coupled with the later development of Lot's separation and Eliezer's naming as heir, suggests to me that that was the formal arrangement. And then there will be later a, every time the promise is reiterated to Abram, it gets more and more specific. Here in the first promise in our text, it's just that I will make your name great. Yeah, it's super vague. <laughs> your name, if Lot is Abram's heir, that I, I have to believe, I'm firmly convinced, I'll put it that way, that Abram's thinking of Lot as the fulfillment of that. He has his mm-hmm. heir, he has a man with also a great developing household traveling with him, and it is through his Lot heir that this will be fulfilled. Even, I think, when in verse 7, which we just read, the Lord appears and says to your offspring, in this context, having an, a, a formally adopted heir, that would be, that person would be the referent of the term offspring. It's not a specific. Gotcha. So that would count. Yeah, that would count. Now it starts. And would it count, would it quote count more? Because he is a family member as yes. opposed to Eleazar. Like, I mean, there would be, yes. it would be layered or, or yes. uh, leveled. Yeah. So that's why in chapter 15, when Abram complains that Eliezer is his only option, he says, you have given me no offspring. Now that Lot is out of the picture in chapter 15, not only has he given Abram no offspring, but the potential is gone now that Lot is no longer in the household. 
And so this, the, notice in 15, in chapter 15, in verse 4, yeah. this, the promise gets more specific. This man shall not be your heir, no one but your very own issue. And that... <laughs> that which comes out of your loins, yes, right? <laughs> that specifies from offspring to biological descendant. Ah, uh, Okay. Then in chapter 17, after they've tried to fulfill this with the birth of Ishmael. Which would be from his loins, though not from, from hers. <laughs> the Lord says, yeah. not okay. this child, but he now specifies for the first time, Sarai. Yeah. Uh, and it will be the son born to you by her that I will bless. And yes, I will bless Ishmael as well, but it will be the covenant I establish with Isaac in 1721, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. So every time the promise is uttered, it gets slightly more more specific. specific. Yeah. It's a phenomenal technique literarily to build the tension because there's this chapters and chapters of tension. We've had this promise now for chapters here from chapter 12 on. And there's a major problem with this promise in that it is impossible in the way that you, that we are so familiar with it, but you can see if you, if you kind of remove, suspend your familiarity with the story, you can see Abram and his household scrambling to find any way they possibly can to make this promise come true. Lot, Mm -hmm. And then Eliezer and then Ishmael (laughs) and no, it's going to be Sarah who mothers the, the child of the promise. So when I said at the beginning that there is such irony here, that's what's laying behind this all for me. Uh, uh, yeah. Part of it. Uh, and it's ironic because Sarah is not mentioned in the, in this original promise. So there's, there's this sort of very subtle play happening where the promise is very general. And then as the story unfolds, it gets more and more specific which we can talk about later. I think that's parallel to how God works in our lives many times. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, have, I have two thoughts riffing off of that. If I may, the first is your mentioning of the kind of scrambling to fulfill the promise. And sometimes it's because of hindsight, it's easy for us as interpreters mm-hmm. to take those as acts of, as either lack of trust or disobedience and that there may be issues at play, but we've got to be careful to not backload the clarification specification mm-hmm. of the promise back into the original promise. Right. That's right. I see. Yeah. That's helpful. And in fact, uh, the general opinion in this world is once you have been given an instruction by a divine being, it's your responsibility to help it come into reality. Yeah, okay. So God helps those who help themselves actually would have been the, the default yeah. in their culture, yeah. not just ours in a different way, but that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So they would <laughs> themselves as being, as being faithful, these are faithful attempts to fulfill the promise God has made to them. They, they would see that that way. And it's interesting because later on in, in the story, you know, several generations later when Rebecca gives birth to twins and she gets this word from God that one of them will be greater mm-hmm. than the other. And so then later on, it doesn't, it's not that it just plays out that way. It's that she arranges the household so yeah. that <laughs> she is fulfilling the word that she was given. 
And so Jewish tradition reads Rebecca as someone who is trying to be faithful to God's word to enact yeah, okay. the prophecy that he gives her. So that kind of reading, I think, um, also could be very informative here for Abram. Yeah. So there may be layers of, I mean, you could, I, I, I'm, I'm open to a, to maybe a, a maturation reading, yes. but, but that's different than a disobedience yes. through trying to force the hand of God mm-hmm. that, that I think might be reading in some theological assumptions that might be foreign to the text. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes. Okay. I, and I but there could be a maturation. There could be a sense of, well, he's maybe, you know, over-interpreting <laughs> the promise and uh yeah. there's a place <laughs> yeah, for I waiting mean, and listening uh, definitely and and i think we have to remember that these people don't really know this god all that right. well yet and their their ideas of what gods are like need a lot of correcting when it comes to the nature yeah. of god <laughs> yeah so they i mean abram might even be hearing implicit conditionals in the opening promise here, which is in fact without conditions. Yeah. But in his worldview, he would just assume, well, if you, you know, (laughs) if you do what you need to do, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, Although he actually just says, you know, (laughs) I will, (laughs) this is what I'm going to do. You know, Uh, this is my plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which then in hindsight, you can kind of see that there's a, there is a slow teaching of Abram, what it means to trust that God has this larger plan. Now, this, the second thing connected to that is, is it seems that the obedience, just as the promise gets more specific, so did the commands that come with the promises. <laughs> yeah. Right? So if, if, if the, the command that accompanies the promise in 12 is just go, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, the command when he appears in in uh, fifteen and that one may not well there's the there's the specific acts these supernatural acts of and then by seventeen you get circumcision mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so it's getting more and more yeah. specific in terms of what the response is going to look like too yeah yeah absolutely which may also as you already hinted at, uh, have some implications for where we might want to go with this uh, <laughs> application-wise. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we do that, any any last thoughts you want to slip in under the wire before we turn to some sermon oh. starters? <laughs> they can be random. They don't have to be connected sure, to the flow sure, of the combo. Sure. Um, I think I would just notice sort of the textual structure here. Of course, a lot, uh, it has a very, very long history of noticing as readers of Genesis that chapter 12 is a major break in the text. In fact, most commentaries, if they're, well, if they're more than a one volume commentary, they're going to break it right here at chapter 12. So we are moving now from the primeval history into the ancestral histories. We are moving from the portion of the text of Genesis that is setting up the history of all humankind now to the specific history of the nation of Israel with father Abraham and mother Sarah. And we are moving from, as Brueggemann puts it, the history of the curse now Mm. into the history of the blessing. And so I don't think we should be surprised to see the word bless here four times. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So it is, 
this is really the, the point at which the action starts in the redemption history. That now there is no longer just letting, letting humanity sort of toil under its own labors to try and save itself. Now God is choosing a particular partner and he's rolling up his sleeves and getting to work <laughs> to bless mm-hmm. the nations of the earth. Yeah, in and through this one. Mm-hmm. And so you get the logic of election there where yeah. God's way of working is to bless all through the many and the many through the one, right? Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. God doesn't, uh, doesn't work through this kind of generic God creation mm-hmm. relation. That's God as creator does sets things up that way. Yeah. And yeah. so the importance of those two parts of Genesis would be that God is both the covenant God, the, the particular God of this people, mm-hmm. and yet not just one God among all, but the one God who made all things. Right. right. Huh. Yeah. That, 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 that bless, 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 bless mm-hmm. so clearly indicates the central theme is blessing. Yeah. 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 You can't miss it so many times. Yeah. And I guess that adds to the irony then, right? Back to your original. <laughs> yes, around. absolutely. Because there's nothing. It sounds like a curse <laughs> to leave. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Yeah. It sounds like a curse to be ca- to be called out of your family home and into a wilderness. And of course, later on, I mean, we could come circle back around to this in, in our final section as well. But I think go and I will show you the land but then in a, in chapter 15, he's told, your offspring are going to be alien. So it's it's not that you get a land of your own. I mean, yes, I will hmm. get this land, but it's my land. And right. I'm going to live there. <laughs> and at least initially, your offspring will be aliens in a land that is not theirs. And they shall be slaves there. And so they pass through the land to Egypt. And then they become enslaved there. So it's not as though the blessing equals prosperity or mm. a pure, uh, a pure experience free of suffering. So that the blessing has to be more than just reputation, protection, status. It's got it's got to be more complex and layered than that. And is that? an adjustment of expectation is there in the sense of, would it be assumed that, you know, baraka means prosperity or is that part also part of the maturation of Abram's understanding of, of the, of the promise? The understanding of blessing is integrally tied to material prosperity and a flourishing home and flourishing family with lots of descendants. And that's not rejected here, but it, no. it's relativized as not the, okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's not going, it, it's not going to be pain free to be the, yeah. the elected people. <laughs> and it's going to take a long time. A long right? time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Which I, you know, for later Israelite readers, and and even editors of this text i wonder if even the age is not irrelevant you know that they can hear their own journey into egypt they can even hear their own exile then later mm-hmm. of that there's this long wait there's yeah. these gaps between promise and fulfillment yeah. even in our own 
father and mother. Yeah. Um, so why should we expect it to be a quickie, you know? That reminds me of something else I wanted to say, um, related to the barrenness of this couple. Uh, so I, I started to talk about the options that people would have had in the face of barrenness. Oh yeah. They could adopt an heir. They could, if they had, if they were wealthy enough and had a, a maid in the household, they could turn that maid into a surrogate mother, the child of whom would belong in the normal course of events to the, the wife proper. So later on when Hagar's child is born, Ishmael really should be legally Sarah's child, but that's not how it okay. played out. The other option would be in addition to seeking all sorts of medical treatments or mandrakes. Yeah. Like mandrakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, if, if a man were wealthy enough, he could actually marry a second wife. And we see that I think uh, what's happening. I think that's what's happening in the story of Hannah later. I think the reason that her husband Elkanah has taken a second wife Peninnah is precisely because mm. Hannah is barren. Now that, that is uh, an option that's only open to wealthy people really, okay. because the expectation is that you treat your wives equally and the children that come from them have to be treated equally in terms of inheritance. So the fact that in 75 years of life on earth, Abram has not added a second wife uh, to his household is significant. And I think it's something that, um, you know, we don't get in these stories very many sort of emotive details at all. That's not how ancient storytellers did their thing. They didn't say, and so-and-so felt this way about this particular action. So we are never told explicitly that Abram loved Sarah or that Sarah loved Abram, but textual details like this sure do paint a picture of a man who, for whatever reason, did not take up the option that would have been available to him as a wealthy Nomad. He seems to be wealthy enough, right? Given yeah. everything else, all all indications, right? Right. All indications are that his household is one of wealth, and not merely after they leave Haran. But I think there's at least the foundation of wealth, so that when they leave Haran, we told we are told in the passage you read a minute ago, they yeah, took, all their possessions and the people they had acquired, yeah, all that they had acquired in the household. I mean, I think many people ask the question, well, what, why does God ever choose a particular person at a given time in the story? Um, I don't know that we can really speculate all that much, but there is something about Abram that I think would have distinguished him from most other wealthy men in his day, that he would willingly remain married. He, uh, he, he could also have divorced a barren wife. Right, because that's like their one job. You had one job. (laughs) So he hasn't divorced her and he has not brought any other women into the picture to resolve this barrenness. I think that's worth noticing. Man, I, man, I never put two and two together that way. Well, it might've been two and two and two together, but (laughs) yeah, but now that you say it, I mean, I can see it. And, and you, especially again, in hindsight, as it becomes later, God is clearly by 17, it's revealed that God is electing Abram and Sarai mm-hmm. to be the father and mother of yes. this great nation. Yeah. Now, it's, of course, a theological question 
that's left open by the text, how much that was, you know, predetermined by God already in chapter 11. The text doesn't say one way or the other, but... Um, it doesn't you know. say, but I think it does hint, because by naming Sarai and then describing her as barren and without okay. children, yeah. I think the text is setting the reader up. It's a, it's a brilliant example of foreshadowing. Yeah. Why do we need to know at that point that Sarah is barren and has no children? Yeah. Unless she is going to figure heavily in the events that come. Well, I... I, I myself am theologically inclined to say that that was the plan all along anyway. And I was, ma- I was, I was attempting to avoid importing my own commitments, but having a reputable uh, Hebrew Bible scholar say, no, it's implied in the text. I'm like, sweet. Okay. Well, I think it's more than implied. And, and this is really getting into what I want to say in our next section. But I think that uh, as the events of Genesis play out, barrenness becomes one of the major themes of the story of the ancestors. And there's uh, no reason for that. So, The election of the barren is yeah. the way of God with his people. Yeah. All right. Well, with that little uh, <laughs> teaser, let's take a quick break and come back and do some sermon starters. Well, let's explore some sermon starters. I, I mean, we I should have said that five minutes ago because now we're, we started geeking out again. But, I, but it's all relevant because I, I did want to locate it in the broader context of, you know, how does this fit in the larger story of God with us? Yes. So it's not just a sermon about Abram and Sarai. It's, mm-hmm. it's this sermon about, about God and his dealings with us and this key moment yeah. in that story. So, uh where, where would you want to run with this if you were preaching a sermon on this? Uh... <laughs> well, I, oh gosh, I would have a hard time staying away from the barrenness theme. I think that's where I would immediately go. Of course, that's the topic of my PhD dissertation. So I find myself oh. pull back from that preaching point at many points in the text. But here, I think, I think it's pretty clear given the textual connections that we've just described uh, of thinking of chapter 12 as a continuation of the prologue story, we could talk about it this way. And again, here I'm borrowing once more from Walter Brueggemann, but he puts it this way, that at this point in the division of the text, chapter 12 is clearly starting a new section of narrative action. And as we look at where the previous section of action ended, it, we can't help but notice that all of this human effort from the fall onward and then the reboot in Noah, all of this human effort has ended with a barren couple. Hmm. And so the way he puts it is that barrenness is the ultimate end of human effort. <laughs> that all ah. of our striving, <laughs> all of our striving cannot get us to the point where we are actually reaching the potential that God had designed for us. And there's this textual sort of rhetorical question that I like to point out in the book of Genesis. The first command given to humanity is be fruitful Ah. and multiply. And the rest of the book seems to be wrestling with the question of will they or won't they? Will they be fruitful and multiply or won't they? Right now at this point in the story, it looks very dismal. And the next three generations of the founding family are going to struggle with barrenness. And so I think we have to ask the question, what is that about? Why is this such a major issue 
for the nation of Israel and and then for us because as we've come to expect from this God, he takes our own futility and turns it into a chance to show his grace and power in our Mm -hmm. lives. And so barrenness in the text becomes a cue that something really big is about to happen with God. And so what does that mean for us then as congregations, communities, individuals trying to follow this God? It doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing because our efforts are futile, but it means that we don't despair when all our strivings seem to be getting us nowhere because we serve the God who really is the source of life. And so I see in the book of Genesis a a series of huge object lessons. Why did the Israelites need to know that it was Adonai, the God of Israel who gives life? Why did every generation need to learn that for themselves Mm. in the first three generations? Because they are going to the land of Canaan. And that land is populated by fertility religion. Ah, yes. So despite what our world might tell us about where life comes from, we know as the Mm -hmm. people of God that life comes from God and from no other. And so I see that here and it will continue to be played on for the rest of the book of Genesis, that life comes from the God of Israel. Yeah, I'm immediately thinking about putting that into sermonic form and and it's occurring to me, not that these would be points, but in terms of just identifying sort of three aspects of barrenness. And the first would be to just acknowledge literal barrenness. Um, Because of course it's really easy to preach on these sermons and run so quickly to the metaphorical that you don't acknowledge the fact that this is a reality experience for folks and to just name that a little bit and to say something a bit about the nearness of God, the, the election of the barren, you know, as the way of God. And just to sort of say, you know, it parallels on other texts where, you know, if I was preaching, you know, from Luke or from Mm -hmm. Isaiah, I might say something about the preferential option for the poor in this case, and not just the, the poor in spirit, but the literal poor. Yes. And in the same way, I think it would be important in this sermon to not to, to, to acknowledge, you Mm -hmm. know, the reality of infertility and, and, and how hard that is and to spend a little time. And for someone who doesn't know much about it to, Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if a listener's listen to this, it's like, hey, and you're preaching this sermon really soon, take some time to learn a little bit about what that experience is like if you know yeah. someone who does, if you don't have experience with it, yeah. Yeah. so that you can speak with empathy and 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 kindness. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think I think that the in tracing the story through so many barren women, the text is modeling something for us that it that can be I think so life giving for our congregations. And that is even though the social implications of barrenness, infertility now are very different than what they were then, there are still ex- families who families who want children and cannot have them for whatever reasons, mm-hmm. or who have children and lose them, are pushed to the margins of our church yep. culture. 
in especially much, in churches in much yep. the same way that barren women in the ancient world were yep. considered useless and so it is important to me to highlight when I'm preaching any of these barrenness passages that God notices and chooses women who have otherwise been set aside. Mm -hmm. And so, and we see that even in some of the stories, the verb is then God remembered. Yeah. (laughs) And so, which could also be translated, then God paid attention to or noticed Rachel or Rebecca, et cetera. So, Mm -hmm. um, so for those sitting in our pews who have been pushed aside through this painful experience, I want them to hear that God of all, of all <laughs> your experiences, God has not forgotten you. Now, then, of course, that does always raise the question in people's minds, well, but not everybody gets the miracle baby like these women right. did. And I think that's true, but that's where it's helpful to remember that this is a series of stories Right, and there are other women in Israel who did not get miracle babies, yep. and that's why the emphasis on being a part of a larger story yes. is absolutely crucial. And and one of the great ironies is that the church is one of the few modern institutions that is so well equipped to speak and think as itself as a part of something larger, and yet tragically the sort of values of the subculture of evangelical churches are just totally obsessed with the nuclear family as the source and substance of all goodness and joy. Right. <laughs> and it's just really. It's uh, such a travesty. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the, like you were saying, what, what is, what is the thing you've been trying that's no longer working, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So then you can talk about individual spiritual barrenness yeah. and what yeah. it means to run out of your own, and to have a word of do not despair. And I think that phrase that you use, life comes from this God and no other. Mm-hmm. Like that could be, uh, that could even be a, a refrain that could be yeah. stated again and again. Good, and yeah. to kind of name the, the competing mm-hmm. sources of life that we mm-hmm. are tempted to in Canaan. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then th- the third aspect would be the, then what you say, like as a church, as a, as a congregation, what, what is it that we are, we feel incapable of accomplishing mm-hmm. um, out of our own capacities? Yeah. So th- it sounds like there's a, the sermons coming together here around a, a <laughs> message of hope, a do not despair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do not despair. I was helpful when you said that. It doesn't mean you don't do anything. I mean, there's things to do mm-hmm. uh, and there are acts of obedience and mm-hmm. acts of prudence where you just yeah. try to figure it out and do your best, but do not despair. Do not give in to despair because sin is crouching at the door. You know, we phrase first appears in chapter <laughs> yeah. four. Uh-huh. And in that case, it was the context of, of a hot nose and anger mm-hmm. that would be murderous rage. Yeah. And here it might be more under the, you know, it's again, it's between the lines, but here it may be uh, rather than that rage, like resentment of a young man. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the uh, despairing resentment of an old man. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. captures the, yeah. right. It, it's yeah. a different side of, and but you can almost see the sin of despair crouching at the door in these mm-hmm. people's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that that, provides a powerful and necessary counterpoint 
to the potential for pride in having been elected. Ha <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. I think the texts here, the, you know, chapter, chapter two and three, if we aren't careful, could lead us to uh, savior complex. Yeah. And it is only understanding the, the decimated potential of the actual humans these words are spoken to that helps us remember there's a real act of God in this. He did not select the most fruitful family on earth. He, he went straight to the people who could not fulfill his promise. And so then pastorally, when God chooses us to, and asks us to take on anything, it is not because, yeah. well, uh, we were the obvious choice. <laughs> um, yeah, this it, is the, this is the justification of the ungodly. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's suddenly occurring to me, this is a, this is sort of Pauline insight that may or may not be, uh, befit the sermon, although it could slide in as a, as an illusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm suddenly seeing the, what, probably should have been obvious to me a long time ago, but it's this conversation that helps me see it. Just the deep unity of Paul's, as it were, doctrine of justification and Mm -hmm. his theology of weakness. Yeah. Right. That that these are that, that to say the phrase to hear from Christ, the words, my grace is enough for you because in weakness, power is perfected. Yeah. To, 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 you know, when, or when he says in his own voice, when I am weak, I am strong. Um, mm-hmm. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me despite yeah. my own weakness and insignificance, yeah. that that's just the other side of the coin of his interpretation of Abraham as yeah. the justi- justified by faith. Right. Uh, it's all, it's just two sides of the same coin. Yes. One using the la- using more, uh, you know, forensic or legal language and the other using more, uh, more and moral kind of language and the other using more uh, physical kind of strength language uh, yeah. embodied. Yeah. And those are really one and the same thing in, in the story of the covenant. Yeah. I don't know. That's just an aside, but, it, but you could see a sermon uh, it, that can be a fun thing to do with a sermon is, is to really hug the text and stay in a very narrative mode. And then somewhere towards halfway or two thirds in yeah. to kind of bring in a phrase from yeah. From the New Testament that suddenly yeah. now has a new, has a different vibe yeah. in yeah. the context of a narrative. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way to go. I, also I feel think like- the, the list of your options that they had were really important. I think mm-hmm. that could be a, a helpful just thing to have. First half of the sermon, just painting the picture yeah. of their desolate existence and yeah. the temptation to despair. Yeah. Uh, because I think a lot of people are going to sit in an audience and, and resonate with that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, um, so I think, oh yeah, I was just going to say, I think that this is a, a classic example of how a text that is so familiar to us operates as sort of shorthand for a whole story. So, you know, in, on a Sunday morning, we're getting three and a half verses yeah. <laughs> with this text in the lectionary. But to understand the significance of this promise, we must be familiar with the whole story, or at least more of the story than we're given yeah. in this passage. 
Um, and so, because it loses, the, the promise that's actually contained in these verses loses almost all of its power if we don't know the story of the folks to whom it's spoken. Yeah. And I don't know, there's a lot, I think we could draw a lot there um, just in terms of if ever there was a passage that was vulnerable to proof texting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's this one. And and then how then do we also treat each other through the shorthand kind ah, of statements nice. that we make without knowing the stories of the lives those statements are coming from? So, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we've we've pitched uh some sermon starters for our audience uh-huh. and but as they run with those and run with their own ideas, I think maybe some ad- some I'm hearing some implicit advice mm-hmm. in what you're saying. So let me tease that out and yeah. tell me if this fits um, that, you know, as one is preparing a sermon on this passage, um, one would, there's kind of like three, there's sort of three concentric circles of context to pay attention yeah. to. Yeah. Right. And the, the, the nearest is just the question of the boundaries of this text for one's own exegesis, as well as for what is a reasonable amount to read on a Sunday morning, because you can't just read the whole story publicly. And yet, I mean, I would be quick, I would be completely, uh, I would be quick to immediately decide that the passage runs from 1127 to to 12, to 12, nine at least. Right. I mean, just that, that seems like a no brainer to me. Um, I, there are sometimes I, I think the, the lectionary itself is, is, a little over influenced by the new Testament readings and what they want to get from an old Testament to match it. And I discourage people from then leaning on that too much. That's yeah. great when you're doing the new Testament text. Yeah. It's great to have had it read, but if you're preaching on the OT one really need to expand those boundaries to capture a, a full story as well as the gospel readings are themselves, you know, these, the gospel readings do break into these little pericope yes. in a way that, that, some of these longer Old Testament stories just don't. Yeah. So I yeah. think expanding the boundaries would be a very good idea. You know? Yes, and I think um, you can't assume familiarity in your congregation exactly, exactly. beyond these little soundbite passages exactly. that the lectionary sometimes pulls out. So, so I'd say that, and then the, then the next layer out would then to be to just spend a little time reading the whole mm-hmm. Abraham and Sarah story just to kind of, yeah. get the vibe of all those details so you can draw on in your sermon. And then the third layer would be uh, to just, even if you have to skim through or refresh your memory from your, from your textbooks is the whole of Genesis, and even, <laughs> you know, right. Like to kind of, yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't exegete all 50 chapters, but to just get a, you know, if you were to actually, I would say maybe if I were to give a recommendation, I'd say I'd re- reiterate, do the lar- do the slightly larger uh, section eleven twenty seven through through twelve nine and then do a kind of survey of the whole Abram story with pen out and notes and then maybe use an audiobook to listen to the whole book of Genesis during the week you're preparing the sermon yeah kind of just while you're on a run or whatever yeah absolutely that'd be great. Yeah. Anyway, I like giving a little generic advice <laughs> in general because the same you could yeah. reapply that same oh, threefold to any passage. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for giving your time. I want to respect sure. your time and respect our listeners' time too. We've been going at it for an hour here, so I appreciate yeah. so much. Uh, 
your insights and your time. It's just a, a huge gift and I'm very, very thanks. grateful. So let me just say uh, thanks to all our listeners as always. And a big thanks to uh, Todd Bouchong and Eric Fisher for all the great uh, production work they do. I can't imagine doing this without them. And a big smile from Sarah, as I say, because she knows these characters. <laughs> we were all in college together yep. years back. And uh, yeah, and thanks to uh, Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.